On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the election. Lots of stuff going on with the election. We're talking about meat. If you have not been to the grocery store lately, you will want to, un- well, you'll understand why when we get talking about it. The prices of meat, yeah, through the roof. And we're talking about band names. Why are we talking about band names? Because apparently it's becoming almost impossible to come up with a new one. Why? Well, that's why you want to stick around to find out. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are now, what's the phrase? Smack dab right in the guts of the election. I don't know what the what the appropriate term is, uh, but we are right in the middle of it. And I don't think this election is going like too many people anticipated that it would. Uh, at least among them, the incumbent prime minister. Um, I don't think this is going quite as he expected this thing was going to go. I want to bring in Kate Harrison. She's a vice chair of Summer Strategies. Uh, she joins us now. Kate, how are you tonight? You're doing, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, we don't know the outcome of this yet, obviously. That's why they have an election day as opposed to just polls and chatter and all the rest of the stuff. Um, but it is, it sure looks like calling an election when people are dealing with a lot of heavy stuff in their lives may not be the greatest idea at least that 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 seems to be the early (laughs) returns on how this is going yeah i think that that's exactly right i i think that you know depending on how this shakes out and it is to your point we're we're in the thick of it right now so no one should be making predictions Uh, but it does seem at this point like a strategic blunder to call an election uh when the prime minister did uh you know there is so much um, happening in the world, things happening in Afghanistan, lots happening at home. People had uh, other concerns uh, related to the pandemic, um, economic concerns, affordability, uh, people feeling, I think, a, a fair bit of anxiety in this moment and really wondering what now uh, the reason would be to have a, an election. So I, I think that the prime minister did not read the room on this. Uh, had he gone maybe earlier in the spring after the budget, when some of those promises that are now in the platform were a little more fresh, when people were starting to feel really good about their vaccination status, things were rolling, things were opening up, maybe the situation would have been different. Uh, But by waiting until when he did, and then not providing a great rationale for why we were heading to the polls in the first place, just saying effectively, well, Canadians deserve a say. A say on what? A recycled platform? Uh, So I, I think that he didn't really read the room correctly. At least it seems that way right now. And now the liberals are sort of scrambling to make this election about something uh, when very few people have any idea why we're doing this in the first place. Well, and we're going to talk about anger in a moment because that is what's going on right now on the campaign trail. And there's some interesting stuff there, but about anger, if, if we get back, let's, let's say things turn a little bit because right now it looks, the polls are saying the conservatives are leading, but you know what, again, who knows what happens? Let's say we get to the end of the election and the liberals squeak out another minority. Is there going to be even more anger that we went through all this and spent over $600 million for absolutely nothing? I think so. I think people are going to be mad about the price tags. They're going to be mad about uh, the focus not being on issues that they ought to have been on. This is really valuable time right now that the government, whoever the government is, could have been spending standing up a vaccine passport system, for example, making sure that uh, the travel and tourism industry had a pretty clear path forward for how things were going to roll out this fall. All of that work has been punted to the wayside, even thinking about, um, you know, the situation in Afghanistan. I know that that's not necessarily 
uh, on every voter's, you know, top one or two or three issues. Uh, but we could have really used a government at the helm right now that was shepherding that process along rather than kind of claiming that there was attention to it, even though everybody's out on the campaign trail. So I think people will be angry about the price tag, about the lack of focus, but they're also going to be angry that uh, we may very well be in this exact same situation again, 12 or 18 months from now. The prime minister effectively yeah. hinted at that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so if you were sick of an election uh, right now and to begin with, boy, you're really not going to like having one again this time next year around the holidays. Well, no, and and he did. He said that very clearly in the French language debate on TVR uh, that uh, that it, we may be back if he gets a minority, we may be back here in eighteen months. And boy, I if he didn't read the room the first time, uh, it sounds like he's really not reading the room right now because I can't think there is a solitary Canadian short of him who wants another election right after this one. Yeah, bingo. And I, I think ultimately the Liberals really needed to have a clear ballot box question heading into this. Uh, for them. And I think that they staked a lot of their fortunes on uh, the vaccine rollout and people feeling good about the summer. Uh, And I don't think that that was good enough. So what's happened now is that opposition parties are having an opportunity to define that ballot ballot box question a bit more. So we're seeing things like affordability and housing and climate change and other issues start creeping up the list again in terms of what people are interested in and what people want to hear about. The Liberals haven't had a lot of great answers for that because they were really resting on their laurels of how they had done during uh, the first part of the pandemic. So now they look like they're out of gas uh, and out of ideas. Uh, and then people are genuinely casting about for and their vote is more up for grabs than perhaps it was uh, even three or four months ago when the polls looked very, very different. About another election, and, and like I'm so far ahead of myself, I grant you this, and I only bring it up because, again, <laughs> Justin Trudeau mentioned the idea of another election. Otherwise, I would never have mentioned this. If the if it went the other way, if the Conservatives won a minority, is it almost inevitable that we'll be into one regardless? Because I just don't see any possibility the Liberals and NDP allow the Conservatives to govern in any way. Or do they run their own combined government and the Conservatives have the most, but they, the most seats, but they don't actually get to govern? Well, from a process standpoint or a convention standpoint, that is what would happen. If the Conservatives won the most seats, but it wasn't a clear majority, technically the incumbent government, in this case the Liberals, has an opportunity to try and retain power. It is really hard to say whether or not uh, there would be a a formal, informal, uh, scary C-word coalition uh, that happens uh, to, to make that happen. I think that there would be so much pressure on the Prime Minister to uh, to take a step back, having held all the cards for this election in the first place, to wind up uh, in a lesser position than when he started. I think that there would be a lot of pressure uh, within the party to, to maybe consider stepping back entirely. So uh, in terms of whether or not, you know, a minority on either side means that we end up back at the polls, it's kind of hard to say. You know, the Conservatives uh, and the Bloc and the NDP for the sake of at least trying to get the country through, you know, booster shots and vaccine passports and whatever it is on the immediacy of the agenda. I think that there is probably a way that it could work because any party uh, that tries to call an election uh, right away again is probably going to be punished by voters like we're seeing play out right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kate Harrison is vice chair of Summit Strategies. She is still with us. We're glad that she is. And Kate, just before the break, we were saying we're going to talk about anger because that really is the 
story right now with the protesters and um, uh, gravel being tossed at the prime minister's head as he was heading into his mm-hmm. bus yesterday near London. And and what we've been seeing, um, at least what I've been seeing on the reports, I have not been out on the road, and the but uh, what I've been seeing in the reports is a few hundred, couple hundred, maybe really, really angry folks raging at him that we hear is very, very unique in this country. We've never seen anything like this before. But I'm wondering if that's true, because I, I mean, I seem to remember Mila Mulroney being bashed by a protester at one time and and Pierre Trudeau being accosted by people. Jean Chrétien had to put that guy in the headlock because they were coming at him. Stephen right. Harper dealt with vitriol. Is this really unusual? Um, it, protests do happen. They happen uh, across parties. Uh, you know, I remember Stephen, Stephen Harper getting rushed off the stage because somebody had tried to storm the stage. It was only the last election as well. You might remember, Scott, that the prime minister uh, wore a bulletproof vest because there were concerns for his his safety and security. So uh, these things do happen. There is a particular uh, intensity, I think, to what's happening right now. And it's happening almost every single day, uh, which also makes it unusual. The previous examples um, didn't see those protesters trail the prime ministers or political leaders like we're seeing happen right now. There's more of an organization to it. So there's a bunch of things that can really be true at the same time. Yes, it's not unique. Still, what's happening is very, very awful. Nobody is out there saying, you know, let's let's do more of this. Let's, I really like the way politics is headed if it's headed in this direction. No one's saying that, right? But at the same time, I think that there are some really thoughtful questions to be asked here about how and why these lunatics, frankly, can get so close to the Prime Minister to begin with. Great and, question. Uh, there's yeah, a lot of question. RCMP, uh, sorry, I was just going to say there's a lot of uh, RCMP officers that are around all the political leaders. Uh, the Prime Minister also has his own security detail, and understandably so, that should be the case. Why on earth are people able to get that close to the PM, his staff, his supporters, and all the media that are trying to cover this election safely? Uh, and I say, great question. And I've been wondering the same thing because surely if this is going on at every stop, we can now call it predictable. And if you know that it's predictable and you know that there's going to be people trying who are raging and trying to get at the prime minister, why would you not put up barriers to keep the, keep them more than like today, the video of the gravel, they were, they could touch the, his campaign bus. Like it, yeah. it's, it seems nonsensical unless Unless, and look, I don't want to be the conspiracy theorist, unless you kind of, you don't want danger, but unless you kind of like the idea of showing the clips of the raging lunatics as you describe them and the prime minister standing up to them and it's a better visual if it's that close. I don't yeah, know. I, the, the pri- you're not alone in thinking that there's maybe a little bit of a, a cynicism here in terms of the optics of, of how that plays. I like to think that ultimately at the end of the day, if there is a real and legitimate threat to uh, the leader's personal safety and security, that would override politics, right? Um, I, I kind of have to have faith in that uh, in order to have faith in the system. And I, and I ultimately do think that that's the case. How this keeps happening in such close proximity, I think now that things have escalated to the point of, you know, uh, an object being thrown and coming into contact with uh, the prime minister or frankly, just anybody in that immediate vicinity, to me, that that should be cause and people would be very understanding of the fact if maybe his events took a little bit of a different shape, um, because no one wants to see anybody get hurt here. No, uh, no. And I, I do think that 
we are talking about a very small number of very, very angry people. Something we're not talking enough about is the other portion of people who are not vaccinated, who could be described as vaccine hesitant, right? These aren't the people that are at protests. These are the people that, for whatever reason, still have questions or concerns about getting vaccinated. Uh, I am concerned that the vilification of anybody who is not vaccinated for whatever reason right now, as much as it might not be understandable to the majority of people, uh, I don't think that that's bringing them into the fold. So I think that there is a bit more of a role here, particularly for the prime minister to play, because he has a lot of eggs in this vaccine basket um, and trying to make this a political wedge to put public health first and actually really be focused on trying to convince those people why they need to be doing this, not turning every opportunity about uh, about vaccines into some kind of a sermon about how the unvaccinated are bad and the vaccinated are good. Yeah, the the basket of deplorables. I mean, we know how that played for a different candidate in a different place that sort of ended a, a campaign almost. And so you don't want to be calling the people that even if you think that of them. But we only have a minute, but let me go back to your point, because I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Nobody wants anyone hurt. And now that we've had this thing escalated where the gravel has been thrown, the stones, the rocks, whatever you want to say, at the prime minister, I didn't see what happened today on the campaign trail. But if it hasn't changed, if, if there hasn't been a move to separate the people from the campaign bus and separate the people from the prime minister, it, 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 you can only be conspiratorial that they want this. I mean, it, by this point, it has to have changed for safety or else something weird is going on. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I, I do think that there probably ought to be some changes. I've heard that there may be some changes just to reflect kind of the, the changing nature of, of the protests and how things are escalating. Um, I also suspect, frankly, a lot of the reporters that are covering these events are not feeling very comfortable about the situation that they are being put in oftentimes. There were stories yesterday about um, some reporters basically acting as, as shields for their colleagues uh, so that they could try to get to the bus safely. Uh, no one shows up on the job and, and expects that to happen. Nope. Um, and nope. it is politics and, and things get heated. But, uh, you know, the violence is, is never okay. I think that there is a risk here that, you know, it is being played up uh, as though everybody at these protests and the small few who are choosing to take things to the extreme are representative of the 15 to 20 percent of people that aren't vaccinated at all. And that is could not be further from the truth. So it's in my view, we need to try and start depoliticizing this issue and think what you will about the protests, whether or not uh, they're happening close for comfort on purpose or not. Uh, I do think that there is something to be said for how this has been made a political wedge and the language that's being used, frankly, to divide people. And the person who is responsible for that is Justin Trudeau. Kate Harrison, Vice Chair of Summer Strategies. I had so many other things I wanted to get to. We're going to have to do this again soon, but I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So did you eat any red meat this week? I mean, assuming you're not like a vegetarian or vegan, uh, that would be an obvious, but did you eat a burger? Did you eat a steak? Ribs? We'll even throw pork in there. Did you have any of that stuff this week? Well, if you have, and if you are the shopper in the family who goes and buys the stuff, you may have noticed that prices at the meat counter have been rising so much so that we may now be in what 
is being called the spook zone. And what is the spook zone? Well, the guy who coined that phrase is our next guest. He joins me now. He is the food professor, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thanks for doing this. Always appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Scott. I, I coined spook zone? Really? Is that is that not you? Well, I've never heard that compared like with shopping before. So maybe it was oh, somewhere else. Maybe it was a Halloween right. thing. I wrote it and I, I thought it already existed. So I guess I coined it. I don't know. You coined I, it to I, me. I, it expresses how I felt the last time I went to the meat counter. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I mean, have we really reached the point where people are going and looking and saying, you know what? I think I'm going to buy asparagus instead. <laughs> it's cheaper. Uh, I have to tell you, I think you need a mortgage to buy beef these days. It's really, really expensive. Uh, so 2021 has been on kind to meat lovers. Uh, plus 10% for beef, plus 5 already for pork, plus 4 for chicken. And so that's the meat trifecta right there since January. Not year to year, since January. And that's why a lot of people, and, and the 10% on beef is really the average. Uh, ground beef is still pretty much the same price, uh, maybe a couple of percentages higher, but some of the cuts out there, oh my goodness, uh, they're up probably 15%. And, and, and the fact that uh, right now um, livestock prices, uh, futures are, are much higher uh, it's not over. We are expecting some some cuts to actually uh, become more expensive by the time we're done in 2021. So what has happened all of a sudden? I mean, COVID has got to be involved in this somehow because it's involved in everything. But what's gone on that's driven the prices so fast, so high? Uh, for me, actually, it's, uh, it's a mixture between weather and, and COVID, but mostly weather. Uh, grains are much more expensive so to feed livestock, it's it's so expensive that right now livestock producers are just getting rid of their herds. Uh, they're getting good money for uh, their heads, but uh, inventories will likely get lower in the fall. When, and when that happens, typically prices do go up. Uh, the same scenario actually occurred back in 2014. Grain prices went way up. Uh, cattle producers got rid of their herds, and boom, uh, prices got higher. In fact, that year, uh, beef prices went up 25% in a month, in one month. And that's when I heard the word spook. Uh, that was seven mm. years ago. Uh, consumers were spooked, and the word spook is, is chosen uh, strategically because when you spook consumers, it's really dangerous because you may got you may not get that person back to the meat counter because they'll remember in 2014 beef became expensive for a very long time even though uh, some discounts were there some deals were there it just was perceived as an expensive product and this year we're reinforcing that paradigm. Uh, getting people to think, again, beef is expensive, and you may actually lose people, and they may go either for another type of meat, or uh, they may actually decide to go with lentils and chickpeas uh, more often. Well, and seven years, I mean, from 2014, I, I know there were people who were concentrating on health and pointing to 
plant-based products being, but we've seen such a surge in the whole plant-based idea and veganism. And ve- I wonder if it's not just financial here, but you're also getting the double whammy of people stepping away from red meat anyway, so that you have not just a financial problem for the meat producers, but the philosophical pro- problem they're now facing. Oh, prob- absolutely. Now, the, mar- the, the protein market is very different now than, than it was in 2014. We're, we're actually way more food literate. We know our, what our options are. Back in 2014, Beyond Meat really didn't exist at all. I mean, plant-based products weren't around. Nowadays, uh, people can actually hedge against animal proteins and go somewhere else and not leave the grocery store. They can actually buy something else that is actually cheaper. Plant-based products are actually getting cheaper while animal proteins are getting more expensive. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think right now Canadians are much more well-tooled to deal with what's going on at the meat counter. Yeah, and in 2014, if you went to buy some sort of burger that was a vegetarian, sort of supposed to be kind of like meat burger, blech, I mean, you, it, it, it was it was <laughs> exactly. not tasting very good at that time, unless you really loved your, you know, peas and everything else in there. So are we then at a point, if you combine the, the financial and the philosophical, are we at a point of crisis where this may not get turned around again? Because obviously in 2014, it did. Is this thing teetering on the precipice that it may not come back? I don't think we're facing a crisis. Uh, what we're facing, though, is a scenario in which we realize that eating animal proteins uh, is a privilege, really. It's a luxury. We, most nations around the world will see uh, meat eating as a luxury. We're starting to see that right here in Canada. And, and that's really what it's all about, I think. Uh, it's, it's just uh, rebalancing things. We've been spoiled for a very long time. May, what I'm saying may be controversial, but I can tell you Canadians have been spoiled uh, at the meat counter for a very long time. Uh, and, and now we do have options. So if, you're, if once in a while you want to reduce your consumption of meat, you do have options, and, and, and those options are not too far away from the meat counter. Yeah. And you know, what's going to be a real challenge is, um, it's not necessarily healthy always, but we see people, I mean, one of the, one of the concerns that people have in public health is that people who are low income eat fast food a lot because it's cheaper. Well, it may not be all that much cheaper for all that much longer if the meat that they have to put in their product is going to go way up. And so it's not just about the meat producer, it's, it's people eating. Exactly. So, uh, of course, chains will actually have to readjust menu prices, and, and, and some people with less means will have to re, re, rethink their own diets, and, and that's really not necessarily a bad thing. And so no. I think eating meat is a very Canadian thing. That's not going to disappear. People will continue to eat meat. They may actually reduce the amount of meat they actually consume because of prices. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. What's really unique with, uh, with, uh, with this year is that all meats are being impacted uh, almost equally, including chicken, because demand elasticity for chicken, uh, well, demand for chicken is actually inelastic. It didn't matter what happened to, to the price of chicken, people kept on buying. But guess what? Sales are down 17% in the last three months in Canada. 17% for chicken, the cheapest of the three. So the meat, wow. meat counter economics are really powerful these days. 
we got to run, but you, you, you said you wrote a piece and you said that you expect that the prices are still going to be going up this fall. So if you like meat, should you be going out and filling your fridge for your freezer with beef right now? Because you're not going to be able to afford it in another few months. If you have space at home, I would, I did myself. (laughs) We like, we enjoy meat at home. And so absolutely. We bought uh, a few kilos of this and a few kilos of that, because we know that it's probably going to get more expensive by the time we're done with 2021. You know, and I thought that guy who, when my sister hit the deer on the side of the road and stopped to pick up the carcass, I thought he was crazy. Now, see, he may have been ahead of his time, (laughs) saving money on deer carcasses. uh, I I don't know, Scott. Uh, That's another (laughs) conversation, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, some lovely tenderized venison, real fresh. (laughs) Sylvain Charlevoix, the food professor. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking some time today. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I have long wondered how it is that musicians can continue to come up with new tunes that haven't already been written. I mean, theoretically, there are an infinite combination of notes, I suppose, but at some point you would expect that they overlap or you think you've created a new tune, but it's really a song you heard somewhere before that you know, unwittingly got locked in your brain and then you think you've created it, but someone says, oh, wait, no, no, that song's already been written. You go, oh, drat. I never, though, thought about band names. Band names. I mean, how difficult could it be to come up with a name for your band? Well, it turns out it may be a whole lot harder than you think. In fact, it may be harder to come up with a band name than stuff for the band to play. My next guest wrote about this in a on his wonderful website, A Journal of Musical Things. If you need good reading about music. That is the first place that you should go because it is fantastic always. Uh, His name is Alan Cross. He's the author of Said Sight. He joins us now. Alan, how are you today? I'm just sitting on the porch watching the storm roll by. Yeah, I uh, just during the news break, I poked my head out and uh, if all of a sudden you hear that's just the witch blowing by on her bicycle and (laughs) we'll... uh, it's, uh, it looks pretty nasty out there. Uh, look, when I saw the headline that you wrote on your site about this, that band names are running out, I thought, okay, you know what? Alan's great, but he may have finally lost it. Because <laughs> how, how hard can naming a band be to which you say? It's extraordinarily tough. If you have ever been in a band, you'll know that you have spent hours agonizing over what to call yourself. You know, the band name has to encapsulate and epitomize everything that you do with what you sound like, what you look like, and your attitude and the whole rest of it. It has to uh, do something with graphic design. It's got to look good as a, as a, as a logo and merchandise and T-shirts. And you, then you've got to make sure that no one else has taken that name before you. That's a big problem because we constantly see bands you know, we're, we're dealing with almost 70 years of rock and roll right now. There have been band names since then, and uh, all the good ones are, 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 are gone. And you'll never beat Black Sabbath, greatest band name ever. Uh, but even simple names like The Who and The Cars uh, are also gone. So, um, no, one come up, no one's had the Vespas yet, though. I mean, you could be oh, really yeah. edgy with the Vespa. Nope, nope, nope. There has been a band. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, I take that back. It's uh, so. So one of the things I recommend people do is uh, go online and just search band name generator. You don't have to be in a band to, to have fun with this. 
But there's a variety of them that you put in certain aspects that you want represented in your name, and some algorithm, artificial intelligence, whatever, will crank out a series of names that you can choose from. Uh, and I, I, it's a lot of fun to play with if you've got nothing else to do at the moment. As you say, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff here and I want to get into it because again, I mean, even with what you've said so far, I think there's a lot of people listening saying, yeah, I, I still, I know I could come up with a band name if I had to, and we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into some of the problems here. But the, the big thing to me is not just the uniqueness of it. Cause it's like a racehorse. You can't have a, a, you can't have two racehorses with the same name. It's not allowed or an actor in Hollywood with, if you remember the screen actors guild, which is why I think why Michael J Fox is Michael J Fox. Cause there was a Michael Fox before him, that kind of stupid stuff. But it has to sound somehow what you come up with has to sound like the music you're playing, which that to me may be the hardest thing because you know, with one exception, that comes to mind, most of the bands that have been really successful, you listen and you go, yeah, you know what? I can hear that music in that name. Pink Floyd to me is the one, I mean, that could have been a five girl K-pop group, uh, Pink Floyd. But other than that, all the rest, the successful ones seem to match the name to the sound. Yeah. Aerosmith, Rolling yeah. Stones. ACDC. ACDC. All perfect. You know, all fantastic names. Uh, try and find one's like that. Now, I'll give you an example. Another thing that you need to do is make sure, because you have to have an online presence, you want to make sure that if at all possible, you can get a .com domain, because that's uh-huh. still what everybody talks about. But almost you know, for, for decades now, all the common words that you might use for a band name have already been claimed as .coms. So you have to find a combination of or a um, derivation of your name to maybe get that .com, and even then you might not find it. One of the things that we're seeing, and I read about this, is called disemvoweling, which means spelling your band name without any vowels. <laughs> so you look at that, and your brain fills in the gaps, and you go, okay, that band's name is Churches, or that band's name is, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and if you use that alternate spelling, you might be able to find a .com. But even then, you know, it's really, really, really scary. Now, you know, I'll give you another... Because then you get into the... Because, Alan, then as you write, that even if you figure out how to do that by coming up with a new spelling, you create a whole series of new problems for yourself in the streaming department now that we're into that. Well, the streaming department, the search department... Uh, you know, what do you enter into into Google? Uh, one of the great problems is a band that we pronounce as Chick, Chick, Chick. They write their name as three exclamation marks. Try putting that into Google. You put that into Google. See, Google doesn't recognize those kinds of characters. They don't, in search, they only recognize letters and digits. They don't recognize punctuation like exclamation marks. So if you enter question or exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark in the search bar, you'll get zero hits. Yeah. I wonder what, uh, what would have come up with Prince. So Prince is thankfully before we, you know, came along before Google became a real thing, I guess, because that symbol would have caused all kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah. There was a, another band from the 1980s called Foyer who insisted on representing their name with some sort of unpronounceable symbol. Uh, they didn't have that much trouble, but at, even then, they, their problem was uh, with record stores. Where do we file these guys? Under what letter? And they eventually just, okay, fine, we'll get rid of that uh, that weird symbol and call ourselves Foyer. 
Okay, so even with all the stuff you're saying, and, and you know, again, people are thinking, I'm sure, well, this is you know, big deal. You can't find a pr- place to file your records, or people have a hard time searching you. Ultimately, if you are a successful band, you're probably going to want to make some money off your music. Every band that I know of dreams of making money off of it. And the thing with the streaming, as you point out, this is where, to me, it gets really fascinating because if somehow, if they enter your name, explain how it works. If, if your name is not spelled right, the, the, the money could actually go to someone else. That's right. We're dealing with something called metadata. Now, if you right-click on any MP3 uh, on your computer, it'll come up with their, uh, a dialog box will open up with a whole bunch of fields, you know, artist name, year, track number, composer. All these things are called data, uh, it's called metadata, and they are used, this information is used to identify that exact song, and it's only by identifying exact songs that streaming companies like Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon and Tidal and all the rest of it know what songs have been streamed. So what they'll do is they will, uh, at the end of each month, they will look through all their spreadsheets, uh, they will look at all the metadata correlated, and then send out the money based on what the metadata tells them. If your metadata is incorrect with your song, uh, you could end up not being paid. And what ends up happening is this: the money owed to you ends up in something that's being called a black box. And this is something that some of the uh, uh, collective uh, performance rights collectors have. And there's tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars sitting in this black box bank because they can't track down the rightful composer and performer. And yeah, so you come up with some clever name that you think is really clever with exclamation marks and uh, ampersands and all these other things, and then no one can spell it and it doesn't get entered right into the streaming services and suddenly you're out all the money that you would have. I mean, it, it, and yet, as you've pointed out, you have names. So I'm sure there is a band called Alan Cross out there somewhere, but let's say there was, and then you decided to be Alan Cross. You've got to now come up with a different version of Alan Cross. So Alan Cross 2 or Alan Cross the sequel. I mean, I don't even know if that stuff would work or if that would violate copyright laws, but you know, you, you could. I could file something called prior art, which means I was using the name professionally in a public way before you were. So therefore, you cannot use that name. I don't care what your name is. It may be Alan Cross, but I got there first. Therefore, I have this name. And oh, yeah, I trademarked it. Yeah. Screw you, buddy. And there's one other thing that that adds to this, because there's so many layers to this that I just, I find this fascinating. There's one other thing, and we've seen it with some bands, that you name yourself something that is, you know, your choice, whatever. And then society, which it tends to do, starts to swirl and sensibilities change. And suddenly something in the name of your band that you had no idea, you didn't create an offensive name, but something changes so that something in your band's name now falls afoul of the politically correct world and you're stuck holding the bag on a band name and a brand you've built that you can no longer use because it's now offensive. Yeah, uh, this this was something that began with the remember the bare naked ladies not being able to play at Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto. Absolutely, yep. Because yep. Their, their name was offensive. Uh, yeah, we're going to be seeing more and more of that sort of thing. There was a, a band from um, uh, Vancouver called Japanese Girls, uh, a disemboweled band, by the way. Uh, and they found out that they thought that that was. Um, somehow uh, offensive, uh, racially insensitive, uh, culturally appropriate, whatever. So they changed their, their name to 
Hotel Mira. Um, another example would be a very good British band called British Sea Power. They've been around for like 20 years. But then they started thinking, yeah, you know, British Sea Power, that smacks of imperialism and colonialism. So as of now, we're just going to call us Sea Power. There were a few other incidents like that. Um, and and we can discuss them at another time, but uh, that's that's the prevailing mood. People are very, very worried about offending people, or they're just changing their way of thinking and going, yeah, you know what, maybe that was kind of weird. We should uh, we should probably make a correction while we can. It wasn't a band, uh, thankfully, but uh, I always remember back in the 80s, there were TV commercials for a diet supplement that came out, um, I don't know, 82, 83, oh, something like that. Yeah. And the diet pill was called AIDS. Yes. And the weight. commercials were saying like, you know, get AIDS, lose weight. And then all of a sudden, a year or two later, the AIDS disaster breaks out and it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That I mean, really? You named it that after us? Um, you know, not quite that bad with the band, I guess, but Dixie Chicks have changed their name. There, and There's an example, um, yeah. Uh, there, I mean, there are other. Yeah, Lady Antebellum, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, again, and you idea, build these brands. Yeah, the, the, the idea of, of, of celebrating anything that represented uh, the Confederacy, even in the most, you know, benign way, you know, Lady Antebellum. Antebellum is a type of architecture, but it's old South architecture. It's the kind of architecture you used to see on plantations, so therefore we can't use it anymore. Well, all right, fine. Dixie Chicks, uh, you know, it's not the chicks that bother people, the name, the word chicks, it's it's the Dixie part. So they, uh, after again, 20, what was it, 23 years, I think? Uh, no, we're going to be just the chicks. Yeah. And, and, and as I say, I, I mean, have there been any bands that have either benefited or been hurt by the fact, I mean, have any of the ones we've talked about, have they been hurt by changing the name because the familiar name is now gone and people don't necessarily know them by their new name? Not They that. can't help. It, it can't help. It's probably stalled the career, and it's really hard to... Uh, I mean, this is a phenomenon that's, that's happened over the last three years. And what's also happened over the last three years? COVID. So that skews absolutely everything. Uh, everybody has been has been struggling. So even if uh, a band decided to change their name, they were struggling before that happened. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, but we are, I think, going to see more groups get woke and reevaluate what they're being called. I mean, there, if, if you want to do something fun tonight, look up worst band names ever online and just <laughs> look at some of the, like, uh, you know, like there was a Montreal band, you know, you would never have this name around anymore. There was a Montreal punk band back in the, uh, in the eighties, the day glow abortions. And, uh, they released records and they toured across Canada. And it was just like, Oh, that's kind of an offensive name. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm looking up right now that I, I I wondered as soon as you started talking about situations in COVID, I thought I wonder if there's ever been a band named Pandemic, and you know what? Sure enough, there's a progressive thrash metal band from Sestapol, California, named Pandemic. That I don't know how many bookings they're getting in the next little <laughs> while. Come see Pandemic. No thanks, we've had enough of that. I, I've seen enough of that one, but you know, yeah, it is. And, and, and uh, come on into the bar and, and uh, order a Corona. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah, no. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you know what? It's it, it's a remarkable thing. I, I would encourage people to go look up this um, uh, this this post at uh, a Journal of Musical Things. It's a really interesting situation that, as I say, I never would have imagined that naming a band could be so difficult now. But as you say, I mean, 70 years of rock, and, you know, we know about 
I mean, what does the average person know? You could probably name 500 bands if you sat down and really worked at it. And there's probably 5,000 bands that have made it reasonably successful, but there's got to be 50 or 100 or 200,000 other bands that have started and worked away at it and never got anywhere, but have a name already done. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem because if they have trademarked that name or have like I called prior, uh, like I mentioned, prior art use of that name, then you could be like this, like Nirvana, our Nirvana from uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they had no idea that in the late 1960s there was a British band called Nirvana. So Nirvana, our band, breaks big with the Nevermind album, and the British Nirvana says, ah, lads, uh, you owe us some money for using our name. So they had to pay them off just so Nirvana and Nevermind in America could uh, become the Nirvana of record. Uh, it's also why we see a lot of bands with the suffix UK attached to them. So Charlatans UK or um, uh, Chameleons UK. And it's also because because there was a, a Charlatans um, band in San Francisco in the 1950s, and there was a Chameleons in the U.S. in the, in the 1970s. You mentioned Nirvana. Nirvana's got other legal issues right now because apparently they're purveyors of child porn. So says yeah. the uh, the little baby who was on the cover of the album. But um, we'll see how the that goes. That guy that's been exploiting his uh, fame for the last 30 years? Oh, yeah, him. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I will go, if I'm going to name a band, and I was going to come, all I will say is any band that has an umlaut in the name wins it for me. Motorhead, Blue Oyster Cult, Spinal Tap. My band will have several umlauts. And I'll go for And I can't imagine there's any band that has at least three umlauts in their name, so I should be safe. Uh, check Motorhead. <laughs> They've got two, two I think. Yeah, Two. I'm going with three. And, or I'm going to go with an umlaut over every letter. You can't top that. Or a no, double umlaut. No, you can't. Or maybe, um, hmm, let me go back through my ASCII character file and see if I can find something really worth to screw everything up. <laughs> it is uh, it is well worth the read. Uh, listen, Alan Cross, we always love having you on to talk about this stuff. Great piece, uh, really fascinating, something I'd never thought of, but uh, immediately got me drawn in. Thanks for doing this today. You bet. A Journal of Musical Things is where you can find Alan's stuff. Go give it a read. And as I say, if you uh, if you are interested in music at all, if there if it intrigues you in any way, uh, it is a great website to be keeping up with regularly because it's uh, it is very 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 well done. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.